welcome to Hit for Six. It's another day, another week, another episode. It's great to be with you, Michael. It's a happy day. I'm playing cricket today for the first time this summer, an internal club game. The test match is in full swing, three days in, two to go. The sun is shining. The weather where I am is glorious. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm back in South London for a few days and um, I'm seeing some blue skies. I'm not playing any cricket today, but I am going to be watching my first proper day of Test Match Cricket. So not, you know, sneakily while I'm at work doing a report. I'm actually going to be on the sofa enjoying the test and it's really well poised. If I can get down to watch you, Rob, I would, but um, I wish you well. I hope, I hope you're going well. It's a good day. I'm pleased to see you've got a, a nice retro England shirt on, one day shirt on, ready for... When's that? That must be... That feels like a NASA Hussein era shirt. I, I got home and my sister really liked cricket in the 90s and she's apparently left it, she's given it to me. Um, so this will be probably mid-90s cricket shirt, maybe late 90s. So yeah, pretty vintage. Brilliant. Have that on ready for, for a big day. But today we won't be talking much on this episode about the Test match, partly because we're recording it before day four has begun. And by the time it goes live, the test match will probably be over. And so whatever we say, I never thought it will probably be horribly outdated as we, we rip into England's top order when actually later today, who knows, maybe they're going to go on to score big runs. And we criticise Mark Wood and Joffrey Archer for poor lines and lengths, only to see them rip through the West Indies in the fourth innings of the match to win us the game. So we'll leave much of that to bed. But we've got a, an exciting guest. A third test cricketer in four weeks, don't we, Michael? Incredibly exciting guest. Former test and one day cricketer, um, legend of the game and legend of broadcasting. Go on, Rob, you announce it. Vic Marks. And I can't stress how much I love Vic Marks. I obviously, Mike Afton, we had him a couple of weeks ago, it was a, it was a big deal. Legendary cricketer, like, iconic commentator of the sky, all the rest of it. Vic Marks, not quite as brilliant or kind of prestigious uh, England career, but. No less, certainly no less a broadcasting journalist. And for me, he is my favourite cricket commentator, bar none. His dulcet tones on TMS, uh, they're no better. That little dry comment, a witty comment there, insightful little thought here, amazing. So I am, if you can't tell, very, very excited to be speaking to him in what, about half an hour's time. We'll be talking about what his, uh, his career at Somerset into his transition into his, well, his time playing for England as well and highs and lows of that transition into cricket journalism it, it should be good no I'm absolutely buzzing I've just been reading his book Original Spin really good read recommend it to anyone out there um, and yeah I can't wait to get, to get asking you some questions about his career and just hear his dulcet tones on our podcast which is a real privilege it is I'm, I'm going to be very very excited oh and also yeah. just um, I know we're not going to be talking about the test but this isn't going to be outdated. Jason Holder is a gun. Jason Holder is a serious bowler. Well, I had some fairly lively debates on a Facebook group chat about this. I think he's great because he's tall, looks like he should be rapid, and then bowls disappointingly slowly, a bit like me. And so I've always warmed to him naturally as it is. Some of, some of my school friends are very critical of him. They think he's not that good. His recent statistics are buoyed by the fact he's taken wickets against some pretty poor teams, Bangladesh and Afghanistan and Sri Lanka, whatever. Um, I was at pains to point out that when they played India last summer, he also averaged 22 with the ball. I think he's brilliant. I think he's a fantastic bowler in particular. Very, very good captain, not a bad batsman. But it's not universal opinion. I've, I've had some real, real hate for my clamouring for him as, as a, a true top-class player. 
Well, I think people are coming. I reckon it's people are coming around to the fact that he is a top bowler. As in, maybe maybe there was a bit of disagreement, but I think if he keeps bowling like he did a couple of days ago, you know, he's he is world class. Just you don't need you don't need to be rapid to be world class. And no, the movement he gets, both in the air and off the seam, is just he's so it's, good. It's like Mohammed Asif. I, well, I was about to say I love Mohammed Asif. I don't because he brought the game into massive disrepute by engaging in a, in a colossal spot-fixing, match-fixing scandal. But nonetheless... He's a terrible bloke, but unbelievable bowler. Unbelievable. I actually read a thread on Crickham for the other day, which was basically described as a Mohamed Asif support group, where they just spent half the article talking about how much they missed Mohamed Asif's bowling. And it was just all of the Crickham Info staff, basically. I mean, Kevin Peterson says, hands down, he was the best player in the face. Like, by, by distance. So he's the only player who you just could, he couldn't play, he couldn't pick. Yeah. And he was to get him out the, the whole time. And he watched some of the time, some of the balls to see bowl to get Peterson out. And you can see why he says that. But I think he's a good example that you can be truly world-class and bowl 75 miles an hour. You've got to be very skillful to do that. But it, it's, you, know, you don't have to be rapid. And in fact, we've seen in this test match, haven't we, with, with Wood and Archer, that... Paces and everything. Bowling, yeah, paces and everything. It's a huge, a huge asset, certainly. But it doesn't guarantee success, particularly... Grey, cloudy skies, bit of a two-paced pitch. Maybe a Stuart Broad kind of pitch, some would say. Yeah, well, Chris Wokes, who knows? Maybe our, our clamour for four seamers as well. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't as wise as it could have been. But hey, and more to talk about that in the coming weeks. Vic Marks now coming up. Well, good morning, Vic. Thank you so much for joining us. How, how are you? How have you found lockdown? And are you excited cricket's back? Um, I am excited cricket's back. I'm more excited than I thought I was going to be, actually. I've been, I've been covering the first test match from my sofa. And I found it far more compelling than I thought I would. So, so that's good news. It helps, doesn't it, being quite exciting cricket? <laughs> it's been a sort of slow burner. But the best thing about it so far, despite the fact there's no one there, is that I think the cricket's been quite intense. It hasn't necessarily been brilliant quality, but it clearly really matters to both sets of players. Um, the cricket's been really hard fought, uh, and it's quite tight. Uh, so that resembles a proper test match. Um, and I'm sort of getting used to the fact that there's no one there, uh, which is not so obvious when you're watching on the telly, I suspect, as when you're actually covering it live. Yeah, because when England have played in the, in the UAE, it's often been in front of three men on the dock. And so I've yeah. kind of got used to watching cricket without there being much of a, of a crowd on, on telly. There is sometimes weird moments where so someone's running into bowl and when it's a test match in England, you expect to just hear that hubbub of the crowd yeah. and it's just silence. Yeah, and, you know, you have a fantastic moment, a brilliant shot that goes for, for dismissal and you're used to and reaction. Um, obviously, we don't get that. But but so far, um, it strikes me that it's been a, a, leaving aside all the financial implications, it's been a worthwhile exercise. No, definitely. Um, and I think it also helps that it's, it's two pretty well matched teams as well. In terms of two like batting lineups with lots of new players or players who still find their feet in test cricket and then two pretty good bowling attacks. Although I think they outbowled us in the first innings, and it's yeah, just yeah. really good to watch cricket. Yeah, but it'll you know this will be a good game. I think we speak on whatever it is Saturday morning. We <laughs> yeah, think it's yeah. going to be. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then? Are yeah, you? Yeah. 
Are you going? Are you, will you be at a couple of the, some of the later test matches, reporting live from games? Yes. Summer? Um, I'm. Uh, I'm going to the third test against the West Indies, where I might be doing a bit of TMS, I think. Um, and then I'm doing a few others live. The system at the moment is that every paper is entitled just to have one person there. There's a big press box with 12 people in, I think. Uh, and I've got a brilliant colleague at The Guardian called Ali Martin, who pops mm. up news uh, like as if he's blotting paper, and he's, he's brilliant. Anyway, he's, we're dovetailing, essentially. So he's, he's doing the first two. Um, I'm doing the match report from home. Of course, it's no great difficulty doing a match report from home, provided the, the satellite works. Uh, and he's actually there. Um, but we're going to swap roles later in the summer. Okay, brilliant. Um, so, so Vic, you've, you, you wrote a book, Original Spin. The hardback came out last year and the paperback came out this year, correct? Um, That's right. Um, well, I think it's a sign of age, really. <laughs> a lot of old, a lot of cricket writers or cricket people <clears throat> end up writing a book in the end. Uh, Shield Berry, my old colleague from well, the Telegraph now, but I succeeded him actually at the Observer many, many years ago. Um, he kind of wrote a, well, this is nearly it type of book. <laughs> and um, uh, I got asked to do one, so I thought, thought I would. So I did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, to be honest, if anyone offered me the chance to write a book about, well, any kind of book, I'd take it, but any book about cricket, I'd absolutely bite the hand off. So I know you've already written books before, because you wrote books earlier in your career, didn't you? Um, Marks Out of 10, was that one of them? Was that on a tour you were on, I think? Marks Out of 11. Marks Out of 11, sorry, yeah. The better title, Marks Out of 11. (laughs) Well, I like to think of, I wrote that in 1984. (laughs) <laughs> and I like to think of original spin as the sequel, uh, but I don't think there'll be a trilogy. <laughs> the I, I, I like books, sports books, kind of written by someone a little bit later in life, because when I was in my mid-teens, I got in, signed to habit of reading sporting autobiographies, and you read Michael Owen's autobiography, written when he was 23, mm. and kind of, not, mm. not a lot's happened apart from that he grew up in Cheshire, was good at football, and played for England, and then it... It stopped before, it'd be far more interesting now when he had injury problems, went to Spain, struggled. And you get such a richer picture of life once someone's writing with a bit more hindsight on some events and then just over a longer time period because there are more ups and downs and and ebbs and flows to life than sometimes these early books that can be a bit of a money grab rather than ones that are a bit more thought through and and touch on a far wider range of topics as, as yours does. Well, I'm, I'm sitting in my sort of study here and I, I often get sent cricket books and I've got some of the worst cricket books in the world here. <laughs> and some of them are, as you describe, um, I think what happens or what used to happen, whether it still does, is that publishers kind of sign up someone who's very prominent, uh, you know, um, Andrew Strauss, Alistair Cook or Ben Stokes for that matter. They sign them up on a three book deal on the basis that the first two won't be very interesting, but they've got them in the stable. And then they hope the tell or final autobiography, probably just after they've retired, is, is going to be the bestseller. 
but I've got sort of, I mean, I hesitate to name names, but it's so-and-so, the early years, you know, written when someone has just appeared on the scene, ghosted, obviously, um, that takes a bit of reading. Um, but I think publishers used to do that because they want them for the big one at the end. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the one that sticks in my mind is, I think I read Kevin Peterson's first book, which he released when I think in 2006, only a year into his international career. And yeah. even then you could tell, well, this seems a bit silly because there's definitely a lot more to come. Um, and then obviously there was this follow-up book, which was very difficult to read because it was just lots of short sentences and full stops and angry statements. But it's, yes, but I, you know, his final book, which was written by um, the guy from the Sunday Times, who's you know, obviously an extremely capable writer, uh, whether you like it or not, it's worth reading. The, the end one, I think. It's, it's explosive. It's definitely... I think well, it, one of, I finished it, I remember. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, I, and, it sounded, and it sounded like... It's a great art, actually, ghostwriting. Not that I've done much of it. Yeah. Uh, I've certainly never ghosted a book, but I've ghosted a few newspaper columns. And it is quite an art to discover the voice of uh, the person you're ghosting. Particularly when they're quite different to you and quite, I, I, I remember reading yeah. Tyson's autobiography and I think it's, I mean, it's a long book, it's nearly a thousand pages, but it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the ghostwriter does so well to capture a voice that it's quite hard to put down on paper, really, yeah. because he's, yeah. because of who yeah. he is and what he's like. And a, a really great autobiography is, um, or, or sports biography, it, it's fantastic. But as, as you said, there, there are often some that aren't. Yeah. I'm staring at quite a few of them on myself there. Do you have a, quickly, while, while we're on this topic, do you have a favourite cricket book? Do I have a favourite cricket book? I, well, I'll tell you one that springs to mind. I may have mentioned it in my book, actually, and I, I had to buy it again, and I, I haven't actually reread it for a long time, is, well, there was a book called The Cricket Captains of England by Alan Gibson, and I, I don't know, he's a a guy who used to work for TMS a bit, but he wrote for The Times. He's a beautiful writer, a very gifted, sort of flawed man in many ways. And he just wrote, a, uh, he actually ended with Gatting, but he, um, and even Gatting was tagged on. But he wrote about all the cricket captains of England from the word go wow. up until the 80s, I suppose. Uh, and it's just beautifully done. He's a beautiful writer. And then I'd, obviously I'd pluck out probably Brearley's Art of Captaincy, which is still doing the rounds, um, which is a terrific piece of work, partly because he's so good at being able to illustrate what he's trying to say with hosts of brilliant examples that he's experienced on the field with, I don't know, Bob Willis, Ian Botham, whoever it is. Um, and those illustrations just work brilliant, you know, perfectly. Um, so there's a couple who spring, a couple of fairly obvious ones in many ways that, that, that spring to mind. You chaired the um, Cricket Book Prize Committee, didn't you, Vic? Um, how did, did you find that? Because my dad was on the same one and I, I loved it because it just meant I had a steady supply of cricket books coming into my hands. <laughs> well, you've um, got some rubbish ones as well. As you that's remember. true, but I was able to sort of, unlike you guys, I didn't have to read all of them. So I could sort of pick which ones <laughs> I wanted to read. But how did you find it? Well, I enjoyed the process, partly because uh, there were some very good people on the panel. 
uh, David being another one. I don't know if you met, you must know Stephen Fay, I expect, who's no longer yeah. with us, who wrote some, the book Arlott and uh, Swanton with your dad. Um, so it was very congenial to get together and discuss these books. Um, and they were far more conscientious, I think, than I as the chairman <laughs> was. Um, and I, I mostly went uh, on kind of gut reaction, really. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't do it as simply as which one took me the least time to read. But it's not a bad, it's not a bad <laughs> indicator if you suddenly realise you've finished this in two days. Well, it can't be too bad. Um, so, and I also realised that uh, there's some awfully long cricket books there that need a bit of editing. <laughs> Maybe mine's <laughs> one of them. I think some writers become so prominent and so, you know, well regarded that editors are terrified to edit them. But usually the editors are right in my experience. Um, so, I mean, I came across some terrific books. Uh, I also came across some that I thought, uh, you know, I'm never going to finish this. And uh, you learn to sort of skim read. I mean, I'm looking now. I mean, I'm sure it's a very good book. In my study, there's a book, Steve Wall's autobiography. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And I've never read it. And the reason I've never read it is the biggest book I've ever seen. I think it's got about eight or 900 pages. It's a, you know, it's a, a hardback there. And it was so intimidating. And I'm interested in Steve Wall, but it's got 900 pages in it. And on that basis, I've never been able to open it. It's exactly the same for me with Nelson Mandela's A Long Walk to Freedom. It oh, sits right. on my bookshelf. And it yeah. I, I certainly was a long walk to freedom and it's over a thousand pages worth. <laughs> yes. I just I basically just waiting until I'm retired to read it. <laughs> I think it's the art of putting something into multi volumes is an important one, to not have an intimidatingly sized book. I remember I once said something like, I think it was a history lesson or something, and I, we, our teacher asked us to recommend a good book. And when I recommended mine and said, the thing I liked about it most was it's only 250 pages, he scoffed. But I meant it seriously, because no, no, it well, I, think, I could actually get into it. I tell you what, if you ever end up on a book judging panel, you'll definitely think there is virtue in a book that is below 250 pages. Absolutely. Um, just so, just going backwards. Um, you mentioned Steve Warwick. You played with him back at Somerset, but we're going to go a little bit further back, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Just at mm -hmm. the start of your career. So, when you started playing cricket as a young, as a young boy, when you were growing up, did you think, you know, this is going to be it? This is going to be my career, or was it just more like a fun game that you enjoyed, and then you just kept playing at a higher and higher level? How did it happen? Uh, well, I didn't really think. I always loved it. From the, I can remember from the age of about six, I. I had a wisdom given me for the dates me, but nineteen sixty two wisdom, and I, I suppose I watched it on the telly, and I played in the back garden. Um, I don't suppose I ever really seriously thought I would actually earn a living as a professional until much later on. Um, I, 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 I was not a brilliant schoolboy creator, but I was obviously better than average and I, I, I played, I got picked for a few kind of representative games. Um, the public schools under 15 side <laughs> was the first lot and then I played for uh, England schools later on. I suppose once that started to happen um, there was the notion, I was playing as a batsman too believe it or not, 
I hardly bowl. Um, I suppose when that happened, then the possibility of being a professional sort of started to come about and then people at Somerset would note, hang on, he's just played England schools, he can't be totally useless, so we'll have a look at him. Um, so, but I suppose it wasn't really until, I remember actually, as I said in the book, I think I got two phone calls one December, one was from Oxford, or no, one from my old school saying, in slightly astonished terms, you've been offered a place at Oxford. And then within the same week, I got offered a summer contract with Somerset or for 1974. And I have to admit, I would think I was more excited by the summer contract with Somerset for the 1974 season than I was the place in Oxford. It was probably the wrong way around, really. But, no, I um, think that's very understandable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was better equipped, actually. <laughs> to be at Somerset than studying classics at Oxford, but that's another story, really. Uh, um, just quickly, actually, just to ask about Oxford, because um, I know you played a lot of cricket there and you captained the team. How was that, yeah. juggling the academic studies while, you know, playing cricket for Somerset in the summer and also captaining the Oxford team in first class at the time, wasn't it? So how was that? Oh, yeah. Well, it was a different time to be at Oxford um, because I think having got there, the pressure to work um, extremely conscientiously was not as great as it is now. Um, someone has been telling me that I think the Oxford side of last year, the year before, about six of their players all got firsts. That wasn't the case when I was playing, although one or two did. Uh, we played we all summer term. We basically we just played cricket. The, the season started in mid-April. We'd play six or seven first-class matches in the parks. That's, so that's three weeks' worth, nearly. Plus other fixtures um, before going on a tour for a fortnight and ending up at Lords sometime, at, I think it was the end of June, for the varsity match. So there was scarcely any time to do any work. Um, <laughs> but you could sort of get away with it. It depended on which subject you read, of course. It was harder for the scientists and the artists, I think. But the, the demands and the expectations academically were much different then. I mean, obviously, some people worked extremely hard and got first, but that wasn't absolutely necessary to survive then. Um, lectures were obviously, you know, an, an optional extra in the summer term, especially. So it was a different era, and you couldn't, you couldn't do that now. Even if there was one of the best creators in the world up at Oxford now, they would not be able to played a full season like we did uh, in 2020. Um, the emphasis is different. They don't really care too much about um, sporting success or prowess at Oxford now, I don't think, or Cambridge for that matter. So and it was think, a different world. Yeah, and I think you can see that, can't you, in the fact that not many cricketers do that route, which yourself and others did, which was combining the university and the, first, and the professional cricket. Now they just go into the academies and then, you know, up into the first team and you don't really see that old route of combining the studies. Yeah. I mean, for a while, I think Durham replaced Oxford and Cambridge as the old sort of breeding ground for potential England captains, you know, Nasser Hussain and Andrew Strauss and a whole host of other cricketers coming through Durham. And they had these creating academies, which have been reduced very recently now. And it's a pity you can't pursue getting a, a degree of some sort and... Uh, playing good cricket with with good coaching, which has been the case really for the last 
couple of decades, there's been these academies at the universities. But you're right, the clubs themselves like to get their hands on the players. And also the funding for the universities is being reduced as well. So I, do, I think that is a shame, actually, because, as we all know, it often doesn't work out as a, as a cricketer. It's a very vulnerable sort of a career to go for. Um, and it's easier, probably, if you've got a bit of bit more education behind you. You think we'll lose out on players? I mean, so we had uh, a couple of weeks ago former Worcestershire opener Tim Curtis on the podcast, yeah. and he was talking about how going up to Durham, taking that route, was was great because he knew he had the security of teaching if the cricket fell mm. through. And so he did it, and he went on to I think Cambridge did his PCC, and so he, he had that in the locker really. Do you think we'll lose out on players of maybe obviously your, your super talented youngsters who seem destined for greatness will obviously go to cricket, but whether there are some great players who'll not pursue their cricketing dream and could have gone on to great things because they've maybe taken the more conservative route and thought, no, let's go to university and get a stable yeah. job rather than. I think probably the great players will go for it. Uh, mm-hmm. But there'll be some, maybe some very good players who think, hang on, I'm not going to risk it. People like, um, well, Alistair Cook uh, was, you know, offered a university place somewhere, I think, but opted not to do it. And you can obviously conclude that that makes very good sense. I think James Hildreth then at Somerset, you know, could have gone to Loughborough or wherever it was, somewhere like that. Uh, But he was already in the first team down at Somerset and opted not to do that. And subsequently has been back to university as a sort of you know senior citizen at the, in wintertime at the age of 36 or so so I'm not sure many people of my era or even recently who are very obviously very good who've played England schools or whatever it is have have left the game out of fear it might not work out but there'll be some on the next grade who might think hang on a minute you know, what are the odds on these? There's nothing worse than being an unsuccessful cricket pro for about three years. Um, and they they might have opted out. But by and large, though, I think it's a very enticing pursuit to follow. And most 18-year-olds will still, I think, give it a go. And if you do get established, who knows what happens after coronavirus, but if you get established now, even as a very good county cricket player, you can... You can earn a far better living than you could have done, you know, in decades past. So I'm not sure we're losing that many. I suppose Zafar Ansari is quite a good high profile example of someone. Yeah, although he's an interesting one in that he he didn't opt out until he'd actually reached the top. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So he had a look and I quite admired him, really, because I thought it showed quite a lot of humility in a way. In, in bowing out, he got to the top, but I think he kind of recognised that he'd, he'd done really well to get into the England squad, but he sort of recognised that these guys are better than I am. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm going to excel in this company. And he, he, having touched the top, he didn't want to sort of do it mediocrely, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt the same way, actually. A few of my friends were kind of annoyed because they were saying well he's had this opportunity that we all dream of why is he taking it with both hands and I, I i same perspective as you vic i kind of thought he's actually been incredibly honest there yeah yeah he, he's bowed out because he has decided he can't get to the level maybe he like he's got to his maximum and 
and, and so he wants to end it there. And I That's thought, right. I mean, I wonder, you'd have to ask him, but I wonder if he hadn't played for England, I think he would have played longer. That mm. he would have not quite known what it was like at the highest level. And he wouldn't have known whether he'd reached his limit. But by being thrust into England's ranks pretty quickly, on the tour he went on, he was, he was you know, clearly different to the others in that he had a sort of academic outlook and he, he was reading great tomes rather than playing on the computer or whatever. Um, but you'd listen to him talk extremely coherently at some press conference or another. And he would be awed by Moen, for example. You know, and, you know, why not? Moen had just played an innings, a store, extraordinary innings somewhere, or he bowled really well. And he kind of tacitly acknowledged, I don't, I just, I'm nowhere near his quality. <laughs> uh, and I think he kind of made that realisation and, and thought, I'll do something else with my life rather than be a sort of a nearly man at England level. He could have played for years for Surrey and captained them, no doubt, but he decided not to. And I, I perfectly respect that. Yeah, absolutely. So just um, going on to your county career. So you joined Somerset, as your, as your book says, in the, in the same year as Viv Richards and Ian Botham. Um, and I think, I think the quote is that Ian had seemed to live a bit longer than all of you, um, despite the fact yeah. that you're both 18. Um, yeah. How was it joining at the same time as these two legends and then playing in this incredible Somerset team? Well, of course, when we joined, we didn't know we were joining with legends. Um, we kind of realised that Viv, in particular, was out of this world very quickly. Um, you know, his first few innings, he played one against Hampshire and Andy Roberts, cricket bowler, his old mate from Antigua. And he took him on with his cap on there, with no helmets anyway, but uh, hooked him out the ground, top edge here. It was fantastic theatre, way beyond. I mean, Zafar Ansari, if I was like Zafar Ansari, I'd have given up straight away then, I think. Um, so we realised fairly quickly that Viv was a freak and that Somerset had been incredibly lucky. He'd never played for the West Indies, nowhere near at that stage. But that was obvious. <clears throat> With Ian, it was not quite so clear-cut. I mean, he was obviously larger-than-life character, barnstorming, crazy. But I don't suppose any of us right at the start thought, hang on a minute, we're, uh, we're in the same dressing room here in our little cubby hole around the back, actually, at Taunton. There's a future... England all-rounder who is practically beyond compare. Um, but then, you know, he, he, we'd always want to watch him because you never knew what he was going to do. You knew he could do something ridiculous, horrendous, or something brilliant when he was thrust into the first team. And um, when he did something brilliant, it was uh, actually quite inspiring because we could see a great big gulf between us. Remember, I'm a batsman at this stage of my career. We could see a great gulf between Viv and the rest of us, but we kind of sort of identified with Ian in that he would play bad shots and not look great sometimes, but he was just slightly larger than life and full of confidence. Mm. So if he could do it, well, maybe well, maybe the rest of us, Peter Roebuck or Phil Slocum and myself, thought, well, hang on, we're not that far away. Ian's done it or done something good. So, I mean, it, and as it transpired, we, we, you know, you suddenly thought, hang on, well, you didn't think about it then. It's, you realised afterwards, really, he was so fortunate to to be playing with two of the great cricketers of their era. I mean, Viv was the best batsman. I've, I still, I would say, the best batsman I've ever seen or played with or against. Um, and Ian was Ian. But it was just a wonderful coincidence, really. 
and you were and you were there as a batsman. You say, and then you started to bowl a bit more at, came, uh, at Oxford, um, and so you became more of an all rounder as the years went on. That's right. Yeah, I, I joined as a batsman, and um, at university, well, obviously the standards not so high. I I sort of realised that the university side. I wasn't captain or anything. This is my first year. The university side could, <laughs> you're always short of batting. Well, they could possibly play another batsman uh, because I thought I could probably bowl spin as adequately as anyone else who was around. And I was only just adequate, but it was a fantastic place to be able to bowl. You had plenty of time in the field at university, but it was therefore a great place to sort of learn to bowl. And you were bowling my first match I'll never forget, it was, you know, against Sussex. This is before I started bowling, actually, but there was Tony Gregg and John Snow. So you'd be playing against them one week and Zahir Abbas the next week and Mike Pro whoever it was. They all played at the start of the season, especially, because they wanted to just get in a bit of nick. And you're suddenly playing against these household names. Uh, and, you know, able, in my case, increasingly to you know, bowl 15 or 20 overs a day, you're bound to get better. Did he bowl uh, at school? I did bowl a bit. I was basically a batsman, but I did bowl at school, but not, you know, when I was played England schools, people will find this hard to believe now, but I was picked purely as, I didn't bowl a ball for them. I was picked as a batsman uh, alongside Chris Tavare and Paul Parker and people like that. So my bowling was not really a serious business. So it was all really at university that it became a serious pursuit. And it helped my career enormously because all-rounders, bowlers, bowlers in those days and probably now, are in a sense, more valuable than batsmen. You can always find some batsmen from somewhere. At least we used to think that. <laughs> yeah, not England's struggling a little bit to top all around. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I, I evolved into an all-rounder. And in the end, people would say I was a bowling all-rounder. I, I did like in your book, Vic, when he talks about your batting and how you sort of learn how to bat, that the layout of your garden potentially affected your batting style for the rest of your career. Oh, I think it's true, yeah. Um, well, we had a greenhouse at mid-wicket and we had a nice little hedge, a sort of three-foot hedge uh, at square cover. So if you hit it into the hedge, all was well, and you'd, the ball would be stopped and you could find it. And I had a bit of an inside-out... Um, offside bias, if you like. And I was very not so good at hitting it in front of square on the leg side. Uh, and I think that stemmed from the fact that as a kid, I got used to the fact that, you know, it was fine if I hit it square on the offside, but a bit tricky if I hit it square on the leg side because there was a, too much glass there. And I think that did, did uh, and I, uh, that stayed with me <laughs> throughout my entire career, more or less. It makes a lot of sense. Um, which wasn't all bad. <laughs> There were more gaps square the wicket, <laughs> and in one day cricket, you know, it, it was quite handy actually to hit it in slightly odd areas. I mean, in a in a, in a much better way. Um, Neil Fairbrother of my vintage was a very good one day player. He everyone used to say we well, hit it in odd areas. Well, he's kind of hit it inside out to places where they didn't traditionally necessarily have fielders. <laughs> yeah, that's funny how it works out. So at Somerset you know, um, after many years playing there, there was obviously the kind of controversial exit of Viv and Ian. Um, mm. and, well, Viv and Joel Garner being released and then um, both of them leaving sort of in protest is the way I understand it. Um, and I think you were actually in Western Australia at the time, but your book talks of you trying to be sort of an intermediary 
kind of for a lot yeah. of it. So how how was that? If you if you don't mind talking well, about it's it, horrendous. <laughs> um, I mean, it's ancient history now, but it was ugly. I mean, I always like to point out. Basically, people see it as a sort of Peter Roebuck was captain, who I had been long, you know, I shared rooms with for a decade or more, and spent hours with you know, traveling, meals, and all sorts. Um, so he was captain. And Peter and Ian had always got on well from 1974 onwards for more than half a decade. They, they were very, very different, but there was quite a lot of mutual respect. Pete was a gutsy batsman. He appreciated how brilliant Ian was. So they, it, it wasn't as if they were at daggers drawn all the way through their careers at all. But by the mid-80s, with Ian as captain and then Pete be replacing him, the relationship had soured and of course the last straw was the sacking of Viv and Joel. In the certain knowledge that um, Ian would go if that was carried out. So and I of course was the one left in the middle. I was still talking to Pete, I was still talking to Ian but I mean it, it didn't, like, there was no way I could do a Henry Kissinger resolution here or <laughs> Boutros, Boutros, Gali, whatever. Um, but I, it was, uh, and the venom between the two was h- horrendous at the time. Uh, and the club sort of imploded, I guess. Um, and I, in a way, I felt always felt sorry for the two West Indians, Viv and Joel, in that I don't think it would have happened like that if, if Ian hadn't been there, in that a lot of the argument for making a massive change was because the team was hard to manage in many ways, and you know the characters in it was too big, possibly, possibly, and that applied more to Ian was harder to manage in many ways than Viv and Joel for a young captain or any captain, uh, in that Ian would do his own thing you know, menial, banal things like, you know, when you turn up and how you train and all this stuff. Well, Ian would just be a law unto himself. And then Viv would watch that and thought, well, what's Ian doing? How's he getting away with this? So he would kind of become a bit more lax, but he would be angry with himself when he wasn't kind of fulfilling the the basic requirements of all the team players. So he, he got grumpy because he hated himself when he wasn't doing all the right things, if you like. So in a, in a curious sort of way, uh, it, it, Viv was always easy to handle within the team uh, if Ian wasn't there, actually. <laughs> so I often felt that, uh, afterwards anyway, that uh, in a way Viv and Joel were victims of Ian's excesses, um, even though Viv and Joel were the ones that were sacked. And it was ugly, and I'm not sure it achieved a great deal. Um, it was always going to be difficult when these great, great cricketers had got into their middle ages stroke towards the end of their career. But the outcome was not good uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And we made the big change, but that didn't hugely improve anything. And it you know, took a long time to recover from that. Yeah. But it's then, I mean, there's some sort of happiest resolution, isn't there, in that um, there's the Ian Botham stand, the Viv Richards, Joel Garner Gates. So the yeah, yeah. piece with the club now, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've they've all been back uh, and they've moved on. The person who who probably 
still dwelt on that episode was Pete rather than uh, Viv and Ian, I think, in, in, as the years went by. In, it's a huge decision. It wasn't entirely Pete's, but he had the power to put the block on. It wasn't his idea initially to replace the West Indians with Martin Crowe. It was uh, the chairman of the club at the time had this, if you like, brainwave. An odd sequence of events in that um, I think it was Essex had, had got in touch with Somerset just to check that um, they could approach Martin Crowe because Martin played for us and they wanted, I think, to know whether we still had his registration and they had to sort of seek permission to talk to Martin Crowe. And then that triggered, hang on a minute, perhaps we should have Martin, you know, and off it went. Uh, so it was, and that wasn't Pete's idea, I don't think. But Pete had the power as captain to block that move or to to go whichever way he wanted to, I think. And in the end, he, he decided not to save the West Indians. Did that whole episode slightly, well, not tarnish, but damp- dampen your reflections on your time playing for Somerset? Or was it just sort of one ugly instant that's slightly isolated and on the whole you look back at a, a great career and, and many happy memories? Well, I think it was more than just one incident because the implications of it, I remember coming back, I was shrewdly, when they had an extraordinary meeting at Shepton Mallet in 1986, I was at the Wacker in Perth playing for Western Australia. (laughs) So I missed all that. But I remember coming back the next April and it was a very weird feeling because I was, came back from WA and went, you know, eventually went back to Taunton pre-season into the dressing room and I didn't quite feel a stranger there, but there were so many new players that I didn't know. Um, so it was definitely the end of an era and the start of another one, um, like uh, Adrian Jones and all you know, good cricketers, Neil Malander, Neil Burns, Graham Rose was suddenly there, and you know, I never well, I I played against a couple of them. Um, so I suddenly felt quite old and uh, uh, and odd going into a new dressing room. So I mean, it was it was it was two distinct eras. But I think I mean, it, it, there was no easy solution in a way in that a really good team had kind of disintegrated and it was going a bit sour. And either way you went, there would have been problems. I mean, there were plenty of problems once we got rid of the West Indians, or Somerset got rid of the West Indians, but. If they'd stayed and Ian had stayed and there was an element of sort of decadence and them being uncontrollable, it would not have been easy, but there might have been another, res- a different resolution might have been possible. Who knows? I mean, I think Joel wouldn't have played much longer anyway, but Joel was never a problem. He was just getting a few injuries. Uh, anyway, it's ancient history. <laughs> None of that. Your time playing for Western Australia, though, was pretty successful, though, right? Um, am I right in thinking, Rob, you said earlier that only the second Englishman to win the Sheffield Shield, is that correct? Yeah, after Tony Locke. Tony Locke and Vic Marks, the first two Englishmen to win the Sheffield <laughs> Shield. And that must be, a, a, and excuse me, you're very humble about much of your playing career, but that must be something you're proud of having, having done and making Yeah, record. yeah. I bet Tony Locke, when I was there, he was living out there. Like we did a coaching session together, actually. Well, he did the coaching. I collected the balls, actually. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that I really enjoyed that. I'd played out there a season earlier on in my career at grade level, grade cricket. In those days, a lot of English pros went out to Australia in the winter. And clubs would give you financial uh, inducements to go. Not a huge amount of money, but they'd find you a job and a house. And, um, 
And uh, so I was familiar with Perth. And then out of the blue, September 1986, I got a phone call from Rod Marsh, who I knew a bit, but not that well. But he was now a selector. And he said, do you want to come and play for WA? And uh, after a day or two's contemplation, um, I said, uh, yeah, we'll come. Uh, and we did. Uh, and I was playing, within a couple of weeks, I was playing in the first match. And it went really well. Um, they were a good side. And I was in, just into my 30s. So I was sort of matured as a cricketer. I was the oldest player in the team, I think. Um, From the first ball, I believe it went pretty well, right? Uh, it, <laughs> well, what a good question. Yeah, well, the first, certainly the first over. Uh, Graham Wood, who was the captain. And I'm getting to know these people. I don't know many of them that well at all. Uh, I remember him coming up and he said, well, where do you field then? And I said, well, I'm not, not 100% reliable in the slips, I'm afraid. And I haven't got a very good arm. He said, go to Square Lake. <laughs> so I went to Square Lake. And uh, Bruce Reed, I think, probably ran into bowl. And ball was clipped by a guy called Andrew Hilditch just towards me at square leg and I did my level best to get it in my hands and then I suddenly realised that they started running uh, and then they stopped running and I, I threw it back to the keeper uh, and he ran and he was run out and suddenly and my fielding has never been a really strong feature of my but suddenly three balls into my career for WA I sort of instigated a run out by not cocking it up too much and there's all these six foot eight Aussies surrounding me, you know, no <laughs> social distancing in those days. And uh, it's all going frightfully well. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, at the end of that first day, I'd taken a couple of catches, taken three wickets and um, uh, was sort of received into the, into the team, I think. Yeah. So how, that how was many years did you, did you play that for West? Was it just a, a couple of years or? Now, I only played the one season, actually, for WA. I might have gone back, but um, we were having a baby <laughs> the following November, which made it tricky anyway. And also, in hindsight, I realised, you know, we'd won the Shield. I'd had a good summer. I got enough wickets. I got quite a few runs as well, I see. And um, my stock was really high in WA. Well, why ruin it by going back there again? <laughs> so, I, And I played a bit of great cricket in that season as well. So I did couple seasons in Perth, but the, the one with WA I treasure and I've, you know, got, we won the Shield and we played really well. We weren't a superstar side, but there were some good cricketers in there like Tom Moody and Bruce Reed and, and many others, but they certainly maximised their potential in a way that wasn't really possible at county level. A bit more time for, for training, uh, a bit more analytical. I was certainly, they trained, they ran all the time. I remember they were quite, you know, they were fit and um, it was quite an eye-opener. You, you had to treasure the opportunities you got because you only played 10 games in, in, at Shield level as opposed to the sort of 22 uh, county cricket. So you, you kind of, if you play in Australia, you had to learn to treasure every opportunity and not be a bit blasé about it. One of, the, one of the downsides of county cricket when I played was that if you failed with the bat, let's say, well, you knew there's another innings coming up in a couple of days' time and then another day or two, there'll be another innings. So, you know, it didn't seem to matter too much. You had a chance at home, whereas in Australia, you've got to grab that chance. Did you feel the quality was noticeably a little bit higher as well? Because there is that feeling that 18 first-class counties means you get a, a lot more average first-class cricketers playing in England, whereas with Sheffield Shield, fewer teams, 
the qualities just up that little bit more? Is that something you, you felt? I think it was more competitive. I mean, there might have been some worse players playing at county level who wouldn't have got in a Shield team. But by the same token, at that stage at county level, at least one and possibly two world-class players. So you'd be playing against, you know, Malcolm Marshall one week, Sylvester Clark the next, or sure. whoever it might be at county level. So you didn't get those those brilliant, often West Indian, but not always world-class players in the opposition. Um, but so you just had, you know, high-caliber Aussies. I mean, the year I played. I think there are only about two overseas players playing in in Australia, and one of them was me, and the other was Richard Ellison in Tasmania, and that was about it. The rest were all Aussies, so you you, you didn't get the really top players, but the intensity was greater, I think. Sure. I mean, to be fair, Championship cricket now is closer to Shield cricket than I think in, in a first division level. There was. In the 80s, if you played a county level, you would you would look ahead and you would try and gauge whether it's worth bowling your best bowler today because he's got to open the bowling tomorrow on a fresh pitch with a new ball. So maybe we won't use him today to strive after victory because we've got to just, you know, use our assets the best we can. So I remember playing against knots and... In the end, they decided not to bowl Hadley in the third innings because they worked out it's probably better for us if we keep him fresh and he'll bowl whoever they're playing tomorrow at, uh, tomorrow morning. Whereas you didn't get that in Shield cricket. There was no holding back. And actually, in Championship cricket in England now, particularly in the first division, there is a more intensity about it than there might have been you know, 30 years ago because we play less. Sure. Sure. Uh, away from your domestic career and more into your England career, how, how did you find playing playing for England? And what are your reflections on your on your time in England? Played six Test matches, but got a, a good run in the in one day cricket as that became more and more prominent throughout the eighties. Do you think you really were you sort of satisfied with your England career, or do you think maybe you, you could have could have achieved a bit more? Well, you always think you can achieve a bit more. I think. Um... I mean, you can, by the time, uh, I, I, I always have to remind you, my last three innings for England were all over 50. Uh, at the end of a Pakistan tour, I, got, I got, suddenly got some runs. Um, but I was there primarily to bowl, which is why I probably didn't play much after that. I am aware of the fact that when I first got picked uh, to tour Australia, I didn't play any tests on that tour, but I did myself few favours because... You know, you look around and think, well, if you're not careful, you look around and think, well, what am I doing here? Well, I'm not sure I should be here. And they picked three hospitals for that tour as well, which is an odd thing to do. Uh, and you have all sorts of self-doubt. And then you realise, and you start wondering, well, I wonder what they think, the other players in the squad. Do they think I should be here? And this is all totally useless, um, because actually people don't think like that. Once you're on tour, you, you don't spend time querying why so-and-so has been selected. So you can sort of agonise and make things worse for yourself. So I think I was guilty of that, of being too lacking in confidence to start with. And then I sort of got the hang of it towards the end, uh, as far as test cricket was concerned. But I, I was more effective in one-day cricket, partly because of the way I bowled, really. Um, 
I didn't quite have enough venom as a spinner. The ball didn't really fizz enough. Uh, I bowled quite slowly. And this, it transpired that this worked really rather well in one day cricket, um, rather than in uh, the longer form of the game. Um, because I, I, I became accurate, I didn't have too much pace on the ball, and that can actually be quite valuable in one day cricket if you get your line, like a bowler line. Um, so I had a means of, of, of frustrating people a bit and getting wickets uh, and keeping a place in the one day side. Um, but I would have, I'd have liked to play more, more test cricket, obviously. But I think it's very understandable, despite that run of <laughs> three half centuries or more. How did you feel when that when that happened? We were speaking last week at, on our we were previewing the West Indies series, me and Michael and, and a couple of others, and we were reflecting on how Ben Folkes must have felt, having done so well in Sri Lanka, uh, had a pretty good winter, and then suddenly to be told, no, we're not picking you, we're looking at we're others. You must have felt after getting those fifties, despite you said you, you maybe didn't bowl as well as you'd like, you must have felt like I'm probably in for another shot here at, at the very least. Did you feel that way? And, and how? Uh, how did you take it being, when you suddenly realised that call's not coming anymore and it looks like that, that ship sailed? Well, it's ancient history, but what I also remember is that it, this, is, this is ancient history. But in 1984, that was the, the, the year, I, winter, I was still playing for England. I came back and... Um, uh, the uh, several players have been banned for traveling to South Africa, playing in South Africa on the rebel tour of 1981. Um, and this was a great benefit to me because <laughs> the likes of John Embry and Peter Willey and Derek Underwood, I think, had gone to South Africa and were therefore banned. And this might have, might have <laughs> enabled me to play a bit more for England than I would have otherwise have done. They were coming back. Uh, in 1984, so the likes of John Embry was available again. And then actually, at the start of 1984, I got one of my very few injuries. I was picked for the one-day internationals against West Indies. Uh, and then I got injured by Courtney Walsh, who hit me. Courtney Walsh was the bowler who hit me most often, it seems. <laughs> and I had to withdraw from the one-day squad. I couldn't move. I got a badly bruised hip. It was, and I missed the match, curiously, where Viv, at Old Trap got about 170 out of 290 or something in a, you know, an epic innings by Viv. So I had been picked for those one-day internationals against West Indies in 84, but had to miss those. Now, my, I, don't, I may not have played the tests anyway, but by missing those one-days probably didn't, um, you know, took me out of the picture a bit, I guess. But my bowling was a little tame for the long format really that's a very i'm humble and, and frank assessment of your own bowling i mean i, I always find <laughs> I, I would have liked to face my own bowling would you I, I always well i'm a hopeless batsman so i do think i'd get myself out quite easily but uh one one final thing on, on your england england career on international cricket there's a, a quote from your book that really struck out to me which was talking about the time on the 82 83 ashes tour um, well this is what you wrote it was a wretched time I can understand how cricketers are more likely to become depressed on tour. And then a little later you said, the temptation is to conclude if you keep playing badly, you must be a bad person. Mm. And you can re reflect a bit on, on yourself, but I think also wider for other England cricketers who've had well-documented difficulties, particularly on tour. 
do you think do you think there's a that kind of intertwining of your ability as a cricketer and your identity as a person and when the cricketing starts to go wrong how that then impacts how you view yourself more broadly is that do you think that's something that's really prevalent and people really struggle with i mean obviously people focus on this far more now and there's more sort of help and assistance available and it's, it's a topic that people can address more openly now thanks to the likes of all sorts marcus Triscothic being one um but i think there i mean i don't i didn't i don't think i suffer from depression or anything like that but i can you but you see the logic if you are it doesn't matter what your job is if you're doing it badly then you start to quibble, question yourself don't you you know um and then you can get into a nasty cycle particularly if you're on tour you've got if you're not in a team you've got too much time to kill really and you're sort of feeling irrelevant uh, and you spend your time just running around doing the menial tasks of 12th man and trying not to be too miserable and drinking too much there is a sort of danger there of that cycle of you know low becoming full of low self-esteem and 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 feeling you're, you know you're wasting your time i guess so I think it is on tour where you find that uh, a lot of cricketers go through some pretty dark periods. Um, you're locked away miles from home, uh, and certainly in the old days, you you know it was not a topic that you would discuss, and there wouldn't be people in the background who were adept at, at, at dealing with these sort of issues. But there would be, you know, you had a, probably a higher rate of broken marriages and uh, personal difficulties because of the weird nature of the existence. I it was also quite good fun on tour as well. But, yeah. uh, but, um, but there is a danger, I think, that you, you, you think because you're not playing well, you're a useless human being. There is a sort of link you can get to if you're not careful. Because you're doing your job badly, you know, no one likes to do their job badly, whatever it is. Do you think maybe it's, um, do you think maybe players are helped now by the security of the central contract system? So they feel a bit less vulnerable as an England player? Well, they certainly, I mean, uh, just imagine, like Sir V and Botham would love the central contract system and he'd probably been a better player for it. Um, so certainly. Yeah, I think central contracts have, have helped. Um, and also the fact that people are they're better paid now also makes it more attractive. Um, but there's still you know, no absolute certainty. Um, you've got just a little bit more security if you've got a central contract, but not all of them get there. You only have about a dozen now, I think. Um, but I mean, central contacts are a good thing and have made playing for England. Um, I mean, a, a lot of top players, Derek Randall, I remember, always used to say, you know, I just play big matches and assume it's my last one. Because um, he would never quite, I mean, he played quite a lot of test matches, but he was sort of in and out and he tended to be the full guy when they wanted to change a team or drop someone. And he had a sort of slightly sceptical view of it all. And he said, you know, I just think this is going to be my last one. Well, the band dropped you've got a bit more security and more support too. Yeah. I, quickly then, on to just finally, your, your more recent career, broadcaster and, and writer. You, mm. you quit quite abruptly. You were Somerset captain for a year and then quit and went straight into journalism 
what from the outside would seem quite quite abruptly. Was it something that had been mulling in your mind for a while, or was it a? Not really, but I was I was I think thirty four. You'd see in those years, you'd see your fellow pros come to the end, and a remarkably high number of them left embittered. And like any sportsman, good sportsman, they think, well, I can still do it. But they're, they're not always the best judge of where they are as a, as a sportsman, as a cricketer. Um, you are, by definition, you think, you know, you think you still do it because that's your competitive. So I'd seen that. But also there was clearly the problem of what do you do when your career comes to end, whether it's 34, 35, 36, you know, you're reaching that time. Uh, and I hadn't sort of carefully plotted this, but I had been asked to do a few pieces as a player columns for the Observer in the previous couple of years, and, um, and I enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then Shield Berry was the Observer cricket correspondent, had been for a decade, I should think, by then, at least. Um, and he decided to move on, so there was a vacancy, and they suddenly, out of the blue, asked me whether I wanted to do it, and. It took a while to think it over, and I, but I rationalised that uh, the chances are I'm only going to play for one or two more years, and this is a very good opportunity. I asked if they could perhaps delay it for a year. They, no, they couldn't do that. They were very, very <laughs> sort of congenial, but they couldn't stretch that far. So um, I just made the decision that um, it's time to move on and take what was a, you know, a, a really nice job. Uh, so I did. Any, any difficulties transitioning from player to pundit in terms of commenting on players and that kind of thing? Or did you, was it quite a clean break? You are a slightly odd position to start with. Uh, and I, I suspect nearly all or most people who transition straight away tend to be more sympathetic to the players. But I mean, I always remember, on my, I mean, I was, I was a greenhorn too. I mean, I had very little experience and I, I remember that I went on tour to the West Indies in 1989-90 as a journalist for the first time. It's Graham Gooch's tour, uh, a very newsy tour, lots happened, uh, amongst which was during the Antigua test, um, there was a, a bit of a storm when Viv Richards waltzed into the press box two minutes before play was due to start seeking out one of the journalists who'd written something about him on the rest day, which he didn't like. Uh, and so instead of leading the side out, he was in the press box, sweating profusely, seeking out a bloke called Jim Lawton uh, and wanting to have words with him. Um, of course, and it was on a Saturday. This all happened on a Saturday. So that's the big day, if you write for the Observer, the Sunday day. Uh, and it was quite a moment as they had this sort of, argument in the press box and it was obviously a newsy item and I, I remember looking at Shield who had succeeded the observer who was working with someone else looking for help and he just looked at me and said don't lead on the cricket he said don't <laughs> and, and you know it was the news story of the day so I had to write about Viv and I'm sure I I wrote more sympathetically about Viv who was probably out of order storming into the press box uh, rather than leading the team out at 10.30 or whatever time we were starting. But it was a quite an eye-opener to hang on a minute. I'm not his teammate anymore. I've sort of got to write about him rather than write 
in his favour, as it were. Yeah. And you wrote about how you had to stop yourself from clapping and cheering and oh yes, yeah, as a as a spectator instead, you know, as a journalist. Well, that's right, and of course, as a Sunday journalist, I mean, you had a you had a great life, but once once you got past Saturday's play. Uh, you just had to sit there and watch in the press box. It's fantastic. And in England, in their first match, against all the odds, started winning in Jamaica, and they won the game. And I remember it was me and there was a chap with Tim Delisle, who was working for the Independent on Sunday, who was starting as a, as a cricket journalist as well. We were sat there. We, you know, every time we got another wicket, it looked like we were going to pull off this epic victory. We started leaping out of our seats and clapping, and we got the, we well we were firmly put in our place and told not to do that. So not what you do in the press box, and um, and the subsequent consequently, you know, if I go and watch a game now, after thirty years or more in a press box, if I'm in the stand suddenly sitting with someone and someone hits a six or a four or gets a wicket, I mean I don't clap. <laughs> I'm just not used to it. Um, it, it, it doesn't come naturally at all. Yeah, how, how did you? Where were you when England won the won the World Cup? Were you in the press box for that? Oh you? yeah, because that's something I I think you every fibre of your body and being is wanting to jump out of your seat and and celebrate or or react in some way. No, not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. Self interest comes first. The World I mean, Cup, and I do remember there were the deadline. The deadline was getting ever closer. <laughs> Because, you know, we'd had extra, you know, extra over and I can't remember what day of the week it was. But your office is desperate for the copy, you know, five, ten minutes after the end, ideally. Because they've got to get it away for the, you know, that edition. And then suddenly, it, during that, well, I mean, it's a fantastic experience. But suddenly, you're writing away there about half an hour before the end of this game. Just trying to get a piece together, which you need to send almost as soon as the match is over. So I'm writing away there. It's been a you know, fascinating day and close game, but essentially I'm writing brave New Zealand victory. And I've probably got some glorious words, about 800 of them, explaining how New Zealand managed to snatch the World Cup, to win the World Cup for the first time. So you can imagine when Stokes gets the extra runs from off his bat, and then we go into a you suddenly realise that all the stuff written is totally useless and you've just got to scrap it and start again. So whilst the world is celebrating this epic, astonishing victory, those of us in the press box who are writing about it, we're not jumping up and down at all. We are staring at our laptops and not only staring, we're just tapping as fast as we can to completely rewrite the pieces that we just about got together. So it was a weird experience because I mean, that was, a, you know, happens not too often, but suddenly you realize that you've got not very much time. Uh, you open the laptop and you just go, uh, yeah. and you don't really know what you end up writing because you haven't got time to sort of agonize or go over it. Uh, and it is quite adrenaline fueled, actually. It's one of the few times that matches trying to play the game, which is far more exciting, really. But suddenly you just don't know where it's going to end up or how it's going to end up. You haven't got time to really be analytical about it. Um, and then basically the next morning or later that evening, you, you look and see what you wrote. <laughs> but you're not jumping up and down much because self-preservation demands that you are just scrabbling like fury to get the copy out. There must be a real sense of almost camaraderie with some of the other 
journalists, some of the other cricket yeah, yeah. as you kind of catch each other's eye and think, right, crikey, like it's gay time now. I've got to try and pull something out of the bag after, after that. Well, we all know, yes. I mean, there, it's a weird uh, relationship you had because you are sort of rivals with these guys you travel the world with, but you also become good friends and there is plenty of, you know, mutual assistance going on. So it is, it's an odd relationship, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a generally a warm one. Um, but you get these odd moments where, you know, you're not, you're not really, you've got time to look at them. You're just scrambling <laughs> to yeah. get some copy out. Um, and as I say, in a way, it can be quite exciting because you are trying to write so fast that you don't really know. You can't remember. Once you've finished, you can't remember what you wrote. <laughs> and then it's quite, well either exciting or alarming to, to revisit it and see what, what you ended up churning out. Uh, that's, that's how I remember the World Cup final. I mean, obviously it was an epic day and wonderful, but you always look at it from your own perspective. It's a bit like in the book I talk about, we talked about um, me and Tim Delisle jumping up and down at English success in the test match when we didn't have anything else to do. Well, the following week, we were covering a one-day international in the West Indies, which is the worst place to do it because of the deadlines. You know, it finishes at about 11 o'clock at night, England time, so we haven't got any time again. And we both wrote, I remember, a West Indies victory, and it got down to the last ball. And West Indies still needed three to win. And Fraser ran out and bowled, and both Tim and I had written acres of stuff about a West Indies victory. And metaphorically, at least, we'd have leapt out of our seats with joy when Ian Bishop hit the four that won the match for the West Indies because our copy still made sense. If, if he'd been out, our copy was rubbish and we had nowhere to go. So don't worry, self-interest takes over in the press box. And then after that, you can celebrate an English victory. On the more the broadcasting, how did, how did TMS come about? How did you get, did you, did you kind of, were you asked to, to come on and become a... Commentator, summariser, or...? or... Um, well, very briefly, the, the first time I did it was as a player in India um, when Peter Baxter, who was then the producer, he'd suddenly run out of summarisers. Mike Selby had stomach problems. Abbasali Beg, an Indian player, had gone to a wedding and hadn't come back. England were about to win a match in Delhi. Uh, quite a, you know, a very good victory against the odds again. And he ran out of anyone to summarise. And he knocked on the door and came into the dressing room and said, is anyone free? I need a summariser. Well, I piped up and you'll do, he said. And off we went. And on that tour, actually, Agus came out as a replacement. I was on that tour. Graham Fowler was on that tour. And Peter Baxter kind of got to know us a bit. And we started doing little bits for TMS while we were still playing. They used to have a county talk thing. And we might do the odd sort of one-day semi-final for them. And then when I retired, um, Peter, he wouldn't use you all the time, but he used me, you know, every year from 1990 onwards. Um, uh, starting off with the likes of Brian Johnson still going, Fred Truman, Tre Trevor Bailey. So I, I, apart from that one appearance in 1984, I've been off and on. I've been doing it since 1990, thanks to... Peter really um, saying, you know, he'd ask you as if you were going to a dinner party or a drink scene. You know, would you care to join us at Trent Bridge? For... Yes, I think I would. That would be very nice. Thank you very much. And off we go.
Brilliant. Uh, well, as I said to you briefly before we started recording, I, I've always, and that's how I really know you more mm. than obviously I sadly wasn't born during your, when, you were, when you were playing for Somerset. You didn't miss much there, I don't think, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like, I mean, obviously quite the side with, um, you know, both of them and, and Vin. Oh, well, yeah, they, they were quite exciting. No, they were worth watching, don't you worry. <laughs> no, but, but yeah, for me, it's always been a, a delight to catch on on the radio, and particularly what I wear TMS is got such a, a fondness in my heart, uh, overseas tours, and mm. particularly that 20, 2010, 2011 Ashes where we won down under. And I'd wake up at three in the morning and just put the radio on next to my bed. Quietly, yeah, yeah. my mum wouldn't hear and come in and say, turn it off and go to sleep. Uh, and just kind of drifting in and out of consciousness and hearing yourself or, or Aggers or, or whoever else still talking on and hearing the score. I'll never forget it was the first test of the Gabba where England were really up against it and then were batting to save the yeah. test. And going to sleep, England started well. They were about... 110 for no loss thinking oh this is looking good going to sleep waking up at four in the morning and I think it, it, I can't remember who it was it was someone on TMS just going and uh, and Trot pushes that into the leg side and thinking okay good Trot's still batting and that moves the score on to 410 for one <laughs> I'm just thinking wow yes okay I'm happy and turning the radio off and going straight back to sleep just knowing that I'd wake up and that the, the test yeah. match had been, had been saved I'd say what, that yeah. minute between, you know, waking up and checking the score or when we're in Australia is always a terrifying minute and it's almost always met with crushing disappointment. And I remember on the um on Cook's last Ashes tour away when he hit that when he hit that huge um double time, I think in the final test, it was the only time in that entire series where I woke up and I was actually happy with the announcement. Every other time was just crushing disappointment, you know. We, every time that series we were in a decent position and we collapsed. But it is always a very scary. Yeah. Well, very often there's the notion you go to sleep with Gare batting and then you wake up with Gare batting, but you realise that England are now following on. It's always a tricky one. But um, there's something I agree. I remember as a kid listening, you know, like you do, to cricket from far distant places. And in those days, of course, you didn't have such a clear picture of what these places were like because you never saw the television pictures. And there's something special about it. I remember watching the, listening to the centenary test all those years ago um, you know at four o'clock in the morning and wishing against or hoping against hope that you know they were somehow going to win it uh, it's it's almost better from from distant grounds yeah no, no definitely I've, I suppose a, a final, it's a final question Vic and thank you so much for spending such a large chunk of your Saturday morning talking to us about all manner of things cricket related. It's been fantastic. But um, Michael, you had a final question you wanted to ask Vic before we before we wrap up. Oh yeah, just final question, Vic. Um, I just wanted to know from your perspective who your favourite at the moment or the best you could say cricket journalist is at the moment. We absolutely love on this podcast um a couple of your colleagues at the Guardian, Jonathan Liu, Barney Ronay. But are there any to you that really stand out at the moment that our listeners should be consuming everything they write, other than yourself, of course. <laughs> well, I, I'm bound to go for mention Ali Martin, who who does a lot of the who does yeah. a lot of great work for us at the Guardian. Uh, I mean, Athers Athers wins all the prizes. I mean, I, it's an un, I think we're getting to a phase where the ex-player journalist is becoming a very rare breed because. Because of finances, apart from anything, when I joined the Observer, I was getting a substantial pay rise, 
nowadays, if you go from playing cricket, even if you're just playing as a top county player, you have to take a pay cut. <laughs> so you won't, you will not find uh, many of the ex-players going into written journalism. They'll go into broadcasting. Um, but uh, to whose names could I? I don't like to talk about my colleagues much, really. But <laughs> but Athers is obviously the one who is an ex-player who is a proper journalist. He loves, you know, he loves the process. Now. It's funny uh, you mentioned Athers um, and you mentioned that World Cup not being able to celebrate. Just a final thing to end on. I remember being infuriated because my dad was at that World Cup final, and mm. he has such a sense of fair play that there's a good picture in a recent uh, a recent Atherton article that he forwarded on to me where you can see the entire pavilion, you know, up celebrating, joyous moment, all the England oh, right. rollicking on the outfield. And then you can just see one man who looks like he's at a party that he doesn't really want to be at with a polite smile on his face. And that's my dad. Yeah. That's just yeah, right. so bad for New Zealand. <laughs> well, he was right, of course. I mean, it was a weird feeling because, you know, it was a, it was a freakish. Uh, you could not have scripted it, um, the, the way we got the, those critical extra runs. You know, England were not culpable in any way. It was just a freakish event. Um, and the Kiwis were brilliant in defeat. And England were a bad in victory, to be fair. I mean, it's odd, you know, that England had, had learned so much from the Kiwis. Um, Morgan, you know, big mates with McCullum and huge specter of all that he'd done with New Zealand. Um, so it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was, an, it was an odd feeling, I agree. And there was, a, you know, the, he was probably right, your dad, to not be celebrating so much. But the Kiwis kind of took it absolutely brilliantly. And to be fair, I think England recognised that it was a freakish act that she got them over the line. That was incredibly impressive. Kane Williams was incredible, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, we need to um, we need to let you go, Dick, because if you're yeah, right in the match, I've got to go and watch England. He's missed the first ball. Um, no, 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 I can't do that. Yeah, Vic, thank you so, so much for joining us. Okay. It's been wonderful. All right. Have a great rest of the day. All the best. Well, Michael, how did he find that? How did he find Vic? Well, I think you summed up pretty well when you messaged me early on during it saying, this is the best moment of my year. Um, it, it was wonderful. He was absolutely lovely, wasn't he? And so generous of his time. It was really great to hear everything he had to say. Yeah, I mean, he, he wouldn't shut up. I'm, I'm supposed to be calling a mate now. And we've, we've overrun because he was just going and going and going with his answers, which was fantastic. Because what we wanted, it was, yeah, it was great. It was really lovely. I thought he showed um, really interesting insights about his, his, his career. Um, and then about, I really enjoyed some of the last bits about journalism and his, his experience at the World Cup final in particular. Was that, was, that was really interesting, wasn't it? I never thought of quite how much that last, all of those like, changes of direction in the match at the end would have affected the poor journalists. Yeah, it makes me question whether journalism, well, it's not a career path I've pursued at all, and whether it's one I ever would, I doubt. Certainly not written, written journalism, because stuff like that, I just want to be in the bar having a beer, celebrating, hugging people, not furiously writing to a deadline after what, wow. after what happened. And so, well, well, when we're doing TMS in 30 years' time, we might be in the bar having a beer. We'll be, uh, we'll be out there. Well, exactly. I'll be, I'll be interviewing, you know, whoever the captain at the time. That, that's the dream. I'd certainly enjoy, enjoy that part of the. I thought we could oh. actually take encouragement from him saying, you know, go, um, or maybe not us because we're not in the, in the written side of things, but like young journalists, sports journalists, would be able to take encouragement actually from him saying, 
ex-player journalists are a thing in the past because of the wages, because that surely at least leaves some openings for, you know, people who may not be world-class at cricket or football or whatever, but are world-class at writing about it. And I quite like that, actually. Yeah, and I, I think there's, I think in, on that wider point, there's definitely a, a growing appetite for high-quality sports journalism again, rather than just the opinion of an ex of an ex-pro you know kind of they, they've got a big name but are, do they write most interestingly insightfully and about about their sport not not always so I do wonder if although of course newspapers are dying whether high high quality online written content which most times won't be produced by an ex-pro is starting to kind of come to the fore again and is something that will maybe we're entering a golden era of I think we can both agree we still very much enjoy Vic's ex-pro writings. Um, oh, yeah. Well, he, he's, he's different though, right? He said Aston's example of a, an ex-pro who's a proper writer. Well, that's what Vic is as well, completely. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, I, yeah, it was, it was a great time talking to him. Uh, and Watch the space who comes next, really. It is, it is. With, with three test cricketers in four weeks, isn't bad. We'll, we'll certainly talk a bit more about the West Indies test series the next few weeks. But we're in, we're in talks with a few other people that we, we know in the world of cricket who are slightly better known than me or you are. You've been trying with an old friend of yours, Rob, but he's not been answering. So maybe Yeah, a, a current pro who will remain nameless has so far ghosted me on, on Facebook Messenger. So um, I'll, I'll, I might drop him a second message in a couple of weeks, but I, I fear that, that will be a dead end. But no, it's been nice to go. I'm enjoying this podcast more and more as we're starting to mix it up with obviously Kyle Atherton, Tim Curtis, Vic Marks, but also still kind of with the West Indies series starting is having a normal review of it last week, more of those to come. It's good. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Mark. I'm pleased you got us to start it again. We're absolutely loving it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, Rob. No worries. Have a great week, everyone. Let's hope England, well, by the time you're listening, we'll know if we won the first test or not. Uh, But let's hope for a good summer of cricket ahead.